Happy Father's Day again to all the dads out there at my house. Today, Father's Day will be a day of great celebration. Naps will be taken. Tomahawk ribeyes will be grilled. And yes, I said ribeyes because what's better than a tomahawk ribeye? Two tomahawk ribeyes. I didn't get any amens out there, but I know you guys were thinking it. You guys, actually, you're all jealous because I've got two tomahawk ribeyes to grill and you don't. I do recognize, however, that for some of you, Father's Day might be a little, a little bit hard. Maybe you uh, lost your father. Uh, I can relate to that. Um, or maybe for some of you, uh, Father's Day evokes some pretty painful memories or emotions. Uh, perhaps you didn't have a great relationship with your father or your view of fatherhood in general is, is kind of tainted by your experience with your own earth, earthly father. Uh, my, that, that was definitely the case for my father. Uh, his dad uh, w- was, not, was not easy on him. They had a very strained relationship. They were never close. Um, you could even say that, that uh, grandpa was hard on my dad, and, and I would even argue maybe even abusive uh, to my father. And um, dad went his whole life never knowing if his father loved him. In fact, I think dad told me once that grandpa only ever said I love you one time his entire life. Before, before dying. It was there at the end before he died. And so as a result of that, my dad carried a lot of emotional baggage um, his, whole, his whole life. Uh, he had a very low view of himself. He was always striving to be accepted and to feel wanted. Um, there was even a season in his life where he struggled with thoughts of suicide. Um, that is, until he met Jesus. Until Jesus entered into his life and saved him, and transformed him. And as dad grew in his faith, he became captivated with the notion of God as father. There was something about the fatherhood of God that, that gripped his, his heart and his mind. And dad was um, captivated with that in, until the day he met the father face to face. So I get it. Father's Day is different for each of us. Um, But I I hope that this morning we can hear from God's word and get a little clearer picture of the fatherhood of God and and even more specifically, what it means to be children of the Father. And so if you would, we're going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 3. If you grabbed a guest Bible there in the back, we're on page 985. The the title of the sermon here is Children of the Father. And I want to take a little bit of time here to explore uh, a little bit more deeply the nature of what it means to be born again. 1 John chapter 3, I'm only reading three verses there, beginning in verse 1. John writes, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Sounds an awful lot like some of the things Jesus had to say in in John chapter 8 in his conversation with the Pharisees. Verse 2, dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Now, maybe you never learned before, or perhaps you've forgotten the context for John writing this particular letter to these particular churches, and the the occasion for it, in case you weren't sure of what that was, is that um, he was warning these Christians from being deceived. So according to him, we are in the last days, and that'll tell you a lot about what the New Testament writers viewed about the end times and when the end times are. John was, was deeply convinced that, that they were in the end times at the time he wrote this, which would mean you and I are, remain in the end times. There, there is that, that, that era of, of the church age in which Christ's messianic kingdom has crashed into the present, and it is already here, but it is not yet fully here. Okay, so we are in in these last days. And John says, in these last days, there are deceivers in the world. And they're not just in the world. Out there somewhere, in in John's day and in John's churches, the deceivers were in the church as well. And you could say that we're suffering perhaps from the same type of situation in American Christianity. There are deceivers outside in the world, 
but there are deceivers inside the church as well. Now, the particular deceivers in John's day um, have been called in the commentaries the proto-Gnostics, or those that preceded Gnostics. And Gnostics, of course, were those uh, heretics in the second, third, and in maybe fourth centuries that emphasized two things. One is uh, that the, the material, the, the physical stuff that you and I are made of, that is bad, and the immaterial stuff, that is your mind, your soul, that stuff is good. Okay, so they were, they were dualists. If you remember, I believe it was the last night of revival on Wednesday night when Pastor Stan Key was preaching, he mentioned Gnosticism and the idea of dualism, that there's immaterial and then there's material, and the material is bad and the immaterial is good. And, and the second thing they emphasized was the supremacy of knowledge. So if you are a, a, an immaterial thing trapped in this body that is bad, what is, your, what is your salvation? Well, it's knowledge. If I get the special knowledge, if I get the special enlightenment, enlightenment, then somehow my rational part of me can become liberated or freed from the decay and the death of the body that is bad. Okay, so it's, it's a heresy that permeated the church, and those that preceded full-on Gnostics were the people that John is dealing with in his day. And you can, you can find it all throughout his letter, hints at what he's trying to defend against and what he's trying to, to preach to the people of, the, of his time. This special enlightenment that Gnostics and proto-Gnostics claimed created sort of a, a spiritual aristocracy where you had those who had the knowledge. They had the real stuff and then everybody else. And it created this sort of system where they were better or more enlightened or more advanced. And instead of being a brotherhood of, of people who in Christ are brothers and sisters and meeting each other's needs and living out their commitments to God and to one another in love, this spiritual aristocracy was not marked by love. They weren't caring for each other. They weren't meeting each other's needs. And you can judge a tree by its fruit. And John's concern is not just with what they were teaching, but how they were living, which we'll come back to here in just a little bit. But John doesn't want the real Christians, the, 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 the flock that God has placed under his oversight, he doesn't want them to be led astray. No, he wants these Christians to be assured of the truth. He wants them to know what is actually true, but he also wants them to live according to the truth. And so, for two chapters leading up to where I just read, it's been this recurring theme. Let the gospel message, let the real truth about the real Christ and the power of the Spirit continue to abide in you. That is the key. That is how you safeguard your mind. That is how you safeguard your heart against being deceived by the deceivers in the world and the deceivers in the church and then making shipwreck of your faith. You see, for John, in contrast to Gnosticism, salvation is more than just intellectual enlightenment. Look again in verse 1. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us what? The enlightened? The, the spiritually superior? Those who possess all the secret real truths about God? No. God calls us his children. And that is what we are. You see, when you and I come to Christ and receive the salvation that he is and offers, we don't just receive enlightenment, and we don't just receive mere pardon. Now, we do receive enlightenment and pardon, of course. That there is an enlightening effect to Jesus. He is the word of God expressed. He is the revelation, the self-disclosure of God. And we, we went over that at length in the first couple of sermon series of the year. If you missed those, you can go back and check those out. All through John, we see Jesus is the self-disclosure of the Father, and he has come to reveal who the Father is and what the Father is like. And yes, we receive enlightenment in that sense from Jesus, and yes, we receive pardon from Jesus who dies in our place in our behalf. But we receive more than those things. And John wants his church, and he wants us to grapple with that. It's not just enlightenment. It's not just pardon. You also receive new life, not just in the sense of a new beginning. There's all manner of self-help books out there that can tell you how to you know, turn over a new leaf, start a, a, a new beginning. The, the, the past is behind you. Today is ahead of you. you know, today you can make it, you can determine to, to do a new thing. And 
start a new direction, and, and there's some value in that, I guess, but that's not all Jesus is offering. He's not just offering the opportunity to turn over a new leaf. No, Jesus is offering a radical transformation, life in the soul, where before there was only death. He is offering life from the inside of you out, new life that can only come from God. And Jesus calls this being born again. I've, I've often remarked and joked that you and I go to a church that has the most offensive name in Elizabeth City. Because to all the, the conservative people out there who believe in the Bible and, and are, are orthodox in their belief, they hate that we have the word Methodist in our name. But all the liberal progressive people out there who, who don't agree with the Bible and they don't think you need to be born again to be saved, they hate that we're evangelical. <laughs> so we just, we're an equal opportunity offender. We offend everybody. And if you're not offended by our name, then maybe you don't know what, what's going on. But look, the evangelical part of our name means you have to be born again to be saved. And we believe that because it came from the mouth of Jesus himself. John chapter 3, he said in verse 3, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Life in Christ is more, as I was trying to hammer home last week, it is more than some impersonal transaction. You know, the, the benevolent benefactor across the room who paid your bill at Tony's, that was the, the example I gave you last week. Yes, thank you for paying the debt that I had acquired for myself but couldn't pay for myself. Thank you. You can receive that from someone and never know them personally and have zero relationship with them. And while it is true that Christ pays your debt that is not the sum total of the salvation he offers. It's not just impersonal transaction. It is more than just intellectual assent to a list of do's and don'ts or beliefs or things we don't believe in. It is more than just a new perspective. It is more than doing good deeds. It is more than social action. All the, the definitions of the world to try to tell you what new life in Christ is, it, is not, it, it, incorporate, it can incorporate those things. But at its very essence, it is first and foremost, and always a radical work of the Holy Spirit at the center of who you are. Newness in life where there's nothing but death. He makes spiritually dead people alive. Born again. In his 45th sermon, titled The New Birth, John Wesley offers one of the most helpful descriptions of the new birth that you will find anywhere in church history. And just like the Wesley hymn we sang a moment ago, the language is, it's hard to read for us, for we modern, you know, American English speakers, um, but it's just so helpful and deep and clear. Let me read just a couple of, of excerpts from that, if I could. He begins the entire sermon by saying this, if any doctrines within the whole compass of Christianity may be properly termed fundamental, they are, un, they are doubtless these two, the doctrine of justification and that of the new birth. The former relating to that great work which God does for us in forgiving our sins. The latter to the great work which God does in us in renewing our fallen nature. So you see, he's making a distinction between justification and the new birth. Not that the two aren't connected, but that you can logically distinguish them one from the other. One is the work God does for us in Christ. The other is the work that God, that God does in us by his spirit. He continues, why must we be born again? What is the need for, for this rebirth that Jesus is talking about? Well, in short, humankind was created in the image of God, in communion with God, but by willful decision, Adam turned from God to his own way. Accordingly, in that day, he died to God, the most dreadful of all deaths. He lost the life of God. He was separated from him, in union with whom his spiritual life consisted. I love this phrase. The body dies when it is separated from the soul. The soul when it is separated from God. And in Adam, he continues, all died including you and me, all humankind, all the children of men who were then in Adam's loins. The natural consequence of this is that everyone descended from him comes into the world spiritually dead, dead to God, 
wholly dead in sin, entirely void of the life of God, void of the image of God, of all that righteousness and holiness wherein Adam was created. And instead of this, Every person born into this world now bears the image of the devil in pride and self-will, the image of the beast in sensual appetites and desires. This, then, is the foundation of the new birth. Here's the foundation of the new birth. That is the entire corruption of our nature. In other words, you need to be born again because you are completely dead when you come into this world. Hence it is that being born in sin, we must be born again. Everyone that is born of a woman must be born also of the Spirit of God. Now I know that's lengthy and wordy and clunky even, but I hope you hear what he's saying. Yes, the scriptures are clear. Sinners have have broken law and stand guilty before a righteous judge. Absolutely. That is that is a, a picture that the scriptures paints more than vividly for you and for me. In fact, John himself, in the next verse, in verse 4, he's going to say that everyone who sins is breaking God's law. And so even John sees sort of the legal aspect of of the situation of sin and the the redemption that, that God is offering in Christ. He says, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And so from a legal perspective, you and I as sinners are guilty and stand condemned and are in need to be made right with him. Absolutely. And this is where... Christ's work on the cross comes to bear. He is, what he did there fulfills the law. It satisfies the law. Christ, because of what he did in our place and on our behalf, offers atonement, at-one-ment with God, reconciliation with God. We break the law and earn the wages of our sin, which is death. Christ fulfills the law and offers pardon and forgiveness, which we call grace. And in Christ, you and I can be justified. You and I, from a legal perspective, can be made right with God by faith. And this is the great work of God in Christ for us. But it's only half the equation. It's only half of the the, the total picture of salvation that is offered to us in Christ and by the Spirit. God must, yes, he does this thing for us, but he must also do something in us. Not just to change our legal standing before God so that God can declare me justified and made right, but so that he can do something within me at the level of my corrupted nature. There's something in me that is broken. It's not just things that I have done. It is what I am. And God has not just offered something for me, he offers something to me and in me. It is the very life of God himself. It's not just having our record expunged. And by the way, if you're like like I am, you're grateful that your sinful record has been expunged. Every one of us in here has a history of sin. We've all broken God's law many times and in many ways. And we all stand condemned. And there's something beautiful and sweet to hear that the blood of Jesus has atoned for that. that. That God takes that record of wrongdoing and he crumbles it up and he casts it into the wastebasket of forgetfulness. As the scriptures say, he takes us in and in our sins and he removes our sins from us as far as east is from the west. Cast them into that sea of unforgetfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for wiping the slate clean and giving me a fresh start in that sense. But then what? The the sin problem is not just a history of actions. The sin problem is that I am broken and corrupt and depraved at the very heart and soul of who I am. The problem of sin is not just a problem of action. It is a problem of being and nature. We are fundamentally flawed and corrupted and we need new life. He's not just expunging your record. He's giving you the very life that he is. God, he says, John says here, calls us his children. Why? Because we are his children. It's not just a change in title. It is a change in being, in reality, a real change that happens when you give your heart to Jesus and you receive the power, the life-giving power and presence of his spirit. He calls us his children, not in some generic sense, 
I mean, every time you watch an NBA Finals or listen to certain political commentators or any of the various voices in the world that have some degree of religiosity, you'll probably hear the expression, you know, we're all God's children. You've heard that expression, I'm sure. You maybe have used that expression before. And there is a a, a generic sense in the scriptures, particularly Paul when he's talking uh, in in Acts in one of the stories there, where he does affirm that that all of humanity are we are all God's children in a very generic sense that God is creator and we are the product of him. All, all, everything is, is a product of God's creative work. And so as his creatures, yes, there's a sense where we are the children of God. But that's not what John's talking about. And that's not the deeper reality that Christ is offering and that the Spirit produces in our lives. Not just cr- children generically, but sons and daughters actually. In a deep sense, in the new birth, that is, that which is necessary for eternal life, that which is eternal life, you and I are begotten of God, the Holy Spirit, in a new and living way. And that reality is right at the heart of what Jesus was telling his disciples in the upper room in the passage we were in last week. They're troubled because Jesus is leaving. They know that all these, they're on the the threshold of making some really bad choices and doing things they never thought they would do. And Jesus is is trying to assure them, and and I'm not going to rehash all of last Sunday's sermon, but he did say in verse 18 there in chapter 14, what did he say? He said, I will not leave you as what? Did he say, I'm not going to leave you as unjustified lawbreakers? No. I'm not leaving you as what? As orphans. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm not leaving you fatherless. Oh, hear the promise of Jesus in those words. Because that's expressed in the negative. I'm not doing this, which means he's doing what? Oh, he's doing something that results in the giving of God's spirit in such a way that you can be really children of the Father. Begotten of God. Born of God. And these two dimensions, the work of God for us and the work of God in us, form the basis of that song that we tried to sing a moment ago, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Now, I sang that song all through Bible College and Seminary, and it has a very dear place in my heart, and it was my fault that we sang it this Sunday. So if you felt lost in that song, don't blame Pastor Jeff, blame me. He was trying to help. He actually put the the notes up there, which I get lost when I see those notes. So I was trying not to get lost in a song that I knew. He (laughs) He was trying to guide you in a song you didn't know. But at the heart of that song, you get the, the expression of both dimensions of salvation. The, the work of God for us and the work of God in us. And so in the midst of this unfamiliar and archaic language, this connection between justification and the new birth is, is this, I view, this beautiful stroke of artistic and theological and pastoral brilliance. The, the first few verses in the hymn have all sorts of that sort of law, sort of legal, justifying type of language, didn't it? We sang words like sacrifice and intercession and pleading and ransom and pardon. And, and we get those because we're good Protestants. But then towards the, the very end of the fourth verse and right in the middle of the fifth, fifth verse, there's a seamless transition from that sort of justification language to new birth language. And that that verse 5 brings them together. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. Thank you, Jesus, for justifying me and making me right from a legal standpoint before a righteous judge. But what's the next breath? The next breath out of Charles Wesley's mouth is what? He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. And so, with confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh and Abba, Father, cry. There's no 
yes, there's a distinction in nature between the work of God for us and the work of God in us, but they are inseparable. It is an inseparable part of what God does. You cannot separate them from each other. You cannot say, well, I was justified in this moment, and then some years later, I, I was born again. No, they happen simultaneously in time. It's what's happening when you give your heart to Jesus. You're being made right with God, but then God himself is renewing you and restoring your brokenness. It's all happening at the same time. And the end result of one is the other, always. And so, true Methodism, the other half of that offensive name of ours, and I mean true Methodism, not the stuff you're seeing in the news today. Not the, the, not the perversion of Methodism or the corruption of true Methodism. But I mean that, that real Methodism, the, the stuff that John and Charles Wesley left behind, the stuff that this church and this denomination and others like us are, are fighting to preserve and retain because there's, there's tremendous value in, in its interpretation of the Scriptures and the way it de- describes living, living the, the truths of God out in community. True Methodism fits squarely right in that beautiful Protestant tradition that champions the doctrine of justification by faith. And so we will always argue for and plead for the necessity of the atonement of Jesus that apart from his blood, apart from his sacrifice, apart from his fulfillment of the law, you and I stand guilty in our sins and lost in our sins and in our, in our lawlessness. We are guilty and worthy of condemnation from God. But the danger of only ever emphasizing that and only ever talking about sort of the, the, the relative dimension of salvation, that relationship of, in terms of my legal standing, my status, at the expense of the real aspect of it, where God really touches you. He doesn't just say something about you. He does something to you. The danger of emphasizing one is that we lose the fullness of it all. It's not just a change in status and position. It is a change in your nature, a change in your being. Yes, it is a declaration about you, but it's an invitation to you. An invitation for what? Yes, to receive the thing God has done for you, but oh, it's so much more. Don't just say thank you for paying the bill. No, the bill payer wants to come in to your life. And he has to. If he doesn't come into your life, you are still dead. I need the life of God to touch my deadness. Even if, the, even if the past has been erased, I'm still broken and damaged. I need you to come into me. And God says, that's what I'm offering. Justification and new birth, all in one package deal. Yes, receive the thing God has done for you, but also God himself in you. Yes, your whole life is hid with Christ in God. Thank you for the blood that covers me and shelters and protects me. But oh, it's not just your life is hid with Christ in God, but God's whole life abides in you by his spirit. And the blood doesn't just cover you and protect you from God's scrutiny. No, the blood cleanses you from the inside out. It's not a Band-Aid. It is a Band-Aid in a blood transfusion. It's everything. It's the fullness of the salvation he's offering you into me. Now you might be saying, Pastor Sean, this is two weeks in a row where you got really theological and it's not typically how you preach. Why are you doing this to us? And the answer is because John's doing it to us. And so I'm trying to be faithful to the scriptures and hopefully this is clarifying for you. And for John, it's not just, remember what I said earlier, it's not just wrong theology or wrong doctrine that's affecting the church. It's wrong living. And there's a direct connection between the two. In this case, correlation does equal causation. It is because they are theologically wrong and in error that they are living the lives they're living. And so John's concern here is not just orthodoxy or right thinking. It is orthopraxy, right living. And so he's going to get theological, but then he's going to get the the rationale or the reason or the implications of what he's saying. If you are truly in truth, again, these are people who are confused. There's been other teachings, deceivers, competing ideas. They were, they were raised in, in Christ to believe one thing, but now people they knew and trusted and loved and looked up to were starting to teach something else. And so they were distracted and divided. And John says, okay, step number one, 
Remember what you first learned. Remember that. What saved you is what will continue to keep you until the end. If you, and you need to be in truth. But guess what? Here's the implication. If you are in truth, then it also means the one who is truth is in you. In other words, you don't just assent to propositions. I believe X, Y, and Z. I'm in the truth. Okay, you need to assent to X, Y, and Z. There is proposition. There is objective truth that we affirm and we are orthodox in our beliefs. But it's not just rational ascension. No, the one who is truth needs to come into you and give you life and transformation and not just impute his righteousness and his holiness, but actually impart his righteousness and his holiness to where you actually yourself are righteous and holy. Not just by declaration, but in actuality, in your actual life. Find me a church out there that will preach that. Find one. Because it's all about justification. It is all about your legal status, your change in, in what your position in relationship to God, but you're still only ever a sinner in every day in word, thought, and deed. Find that in the scriptures, church. You can't do it. You are not saved just to continue to be what you were before. You are a new creation. And God has equipped you with everything you need for living godly lives. If you are in the truth, the one who is, is the truth will be in you. The new birth transforms you, and then your behavior, your own fruit, issues from that transformation. What does that fruit look like? Well, we call it here holy love. Holy love. Did you ever look at the inside of your bulletin on the left-hand side at the top? What does it say? We are, this is our mission, this is our, our vision statement. This is who we are. It's our DNA. We are a Christ-centered, that means something. Community, well, that means something. Listen to last week's sermon if you don't know what that means. We are a Christ-centered community of what? Holy love. Holy love is always the fruit of genuine Christianity. Why? Because the genuine Christian partakes of the one who is holy love. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his marvelous glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Oh, I, I long for a worshiping community, and I think I found one here, but sometimes we need to be reminded of the things we already know. I long to fellowship with a community of believers that, that are convinced that life in Christ is more than just a change of title or status or standing, but that it is also partaking of the divine nature. God himself abiding in me and in you and in us. The Holy One. The one who is love. Takes up residence in you and me. That's what Jesus promises his disciples in the upper room. When the Spirit comes, the Father and I will make our abode in you. The life of the Holy One. Touching your life. Permeating your life transforming your life from the inside out. And the rest of our passage in John, 1 John 3 affirms this. So far, we've only done verse 1. I promise verses 2 and 3 aren't going to be as long as verse 1. They're going to be much shorter here. We're at the end. Look at verse 2. He says, we are already God's children now. In other words, the reality of the new birth is a present reality. When you, when you put your faith in Jesus and receive 
Yes, pardon, but also his spirit. And he breathes new life into your dead soul. You become a child of God today. We are God's children already right now. The, the eternal life that you and I are promised at death that lasts forever, you don't have to wait until you die to receive it. It begins today. And though you're, you're in a body like I am that's prone to decay and breaking down every day, every one of you is a little older than the last time I saw you when you came in. I was looking at pictures on, uh, I made the mistake of opening up Facebook the other day, and it showed me a picture of Father's Day five years ago, before, right after I took this position at this, or actually right before. It was June 21st in 2017 when I became lead pastor here. So right, right around the time that I came into this role, I had a beautiful face of, of dark facial hair. But something's happening here that I didn't ask for and that you are all responsible for. In fact, if I could name all these white hairs, it would be like all your names. These are, you are my white hairs. We're all breaking down. We're all decaying. We're, we are earthen vessels like clay pots. But guess what? We possess a treasure. I think we sang that this morning. How rich a treasure we currently possess. And by the way, God doesn't discard your body when you die. No, he will resurrect your body because it's not dualism. It's not material bad, immaterial good. God created both, and he is saving you completely. You will live eternal, eternally as an enfleshed spirit, fully redeemed, fully renewed. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. That's what he's saying. He says, we are already God's children now, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. No, no one can, can say with 100% certainty exactly what heaven will be like when, when the heaven comes to the earth and God renews all of his creation and you and I live forever as enfleshed, glorified spirits. And we don't know what it's going to look like entirely. But we do know this. We will be like him. That's what it says. He has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him. In other words, you and I can't fully know what a glorified state will look like, but we know who it looks like. And this is God's will. This is the whole point of it all. To make us, yes, sons and daughters by his grace, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, who is son by nature. That's God's purpose for you. And there's a lot of you in here who are searching for God's purpose for your life. You're searching for, God, what is God's will for me? And I want to tell you, that is his will for you. Regardless of what job you take or what person you marry or what school you attend or any of the other life choices we make, no matter what those are, God's will for you and for me is the same, that we would be conformed to the image of the Son in righteousness and holiness. It is God's will for you to be holy as he is holy. And the destiny of all those who by the Holy Spirit today called God Father is what? Yes, it is to be with Christ for eternity, but it is also to be like Christ for eternity. That's God's will for you. Today, to be conformed in ever-increasing degrees into the image of his Son. And everyone, he says in verse 3, who has this expectation will keep themselves pure today. There it is. That's where orthodoxy meets orthopraxy. That's where your understanding of God, who God is, your understanding of the salvation he offers, that's where the rubber of that meets the road. And you start to see, okay, this is what it means then. What does it mean? Does it mean that I, because I'm under grace, that I can continue to sin, that grace would abound all the more? Paul say in Romans 9, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You never presume upon his grace. Do you forget what it cost you to be saved? Do you have no love at all for the one who hung on a tree for you? 
How dare you presume upon his grace? That is not the point of grace. The point of grace is not to give you a free pass to sin. The point of grace is to enable you to be holy and live a life that pleases God. In light of what God has done, in light of what he is doing, the expectation of what is to come, all of that means that it is of utmost importance that you and I keep ourselves pure today. And I think perhaps the greatest flaw of contemporary evangelical Christianity is our sole reliance upon the transaction model of salvation. We only ever emphasize here. Yeah, we talk about being born again, but really what matters is that I'm a sinner, but he has saved me. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. The transaction has occurred. He's done the thing. I've said the words. Now the rest is sort of just, you know, incidental. And so I can come to church when I want to. I'll sing the songs because I like the tunes. I'll believe all the things. I'll say the words when they're on the screen. But then, well, really, at the end of the day, I'm going to live how I want to live because it doesn't matter in the end, does it? Because the transaction has occurred. It doesn't matter what I do or who I am, ultimately. Sure, when I, when I have a need, I come to God. But when everything's hunky-dory, what, what's, what then? Well, I'm going to tell lies when they suit me. I'm going to ignore the poor because it's their fault they're there, not mine. I'm going to remain silent in my witness because I don't want to offend anybody or feel uncomfortable. I'll sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, God's word says you're not supposed to, and I know it's wrong, but I really love him. I'll be greedy. I'll complain. I'll slander people when they cross me. I mean, the list could go on and on. And we make all the rationalizations for these behaviors. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner. We slap him in the face when we do it. Now, I would say in light of what he has done, in light of what he is doing now, to conform you into the image of his son in light of your destiny, the goal that you're heading toward. Hear the apostle. The implications of grace are that you remain pure, that you pursue holiness, that holiness without which no one can see the Lord today. And you're saying, well, Sean, I can't do it on my own. Well, you're right. (laughs) Of course you can't. But who has, who has filled you with the life of himself? Who was the one that stooped down into the very depths of your depravity and took hold of your corrupt and vile and rebellious, perverted, sinful nature and conjoined it to his own? Who did that? Oh, it's the Holy One. Holy One, who abides in you, moment by moment, it's the Holy One. Who gives you, as we heard from Peter a second ago, everything you need for life and godliness? The Holy One. He doesn't say, who forgives you every time you mess up? Well, we know, it's, we know who that is. And there is grace for, for when we fail and make mistakes. Okay, fine. But it's more than just forgiveness for mistakes. It's power. It's power over sin. You can be victorious today. Christ came to crush and destroy and eradicate the works of the devil. It's in the next few verses. Holy love is the fruit of his spirit, but it is also the duty of the Christian. Those who are in union with him, who love and who follow Jesus, hear him say, if you love me, Obey my commandments if you love me. Holiness is not optional to Jesus. And you can be holy because the Spirit of Christ dwells within you and produces his fruit. But you also must be holy because God's will is to conform you to the image 
of Christ. And he has given us his son in his spirit to break the power of sin, destroy the works of the devil, in order, yes, to make us right with himself, but also to make us like himself. So, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, put on your new nature. Created to be like God. Truly righteous and holy. I know I've told some of you this story before, and so if this is uh, old news to you, then perhaps you can hear it with fresh ears this morning. But I know there's a lot of you that don't know this. If you were to walk into my office in the other building, which is strategically and conveniently located right next to the bathrooms, because that is my view of the pastor. Not that we're not any good, but we're no better than anybody else. We can have, we can have an office next to the bathroom. It doesn't have to be the front office. And I promise you, that's, I literally think that. That's why when Pastor Bill left, I said no to the front office because I'm just a servant, okay? That's not platitude. That is the earnest, sincere expression of my heart. If you were to go into my office, you walk in the door, on the left-hand side is a bookshelf. It's about yay high, about chest high. It's four shelves. And looking at the shelves from the bottom up, the bottom shelf contains a set of commentaries that was gifted to me, which I am very grateful for. The next shelf up is... Uh, can be found all my favorite books, all my favorite topics. In fact, a lot of the things I'm preaching to you this morning are contained in those books. Um, so my favorite books. Next shelf up are my favorite pictures of my children and my wife, my family. So this is the family shelf. But then on the top shelf, I have what I consider something like a, a little memorial to the memory of my father. And so I have a picture of dad when he was in the Air Force. He was about 20 years old. Handsome guy. Um, one of the, uh, the shells from his funeral where they gave him a military salute. Um, but right in the middle of that memorial is his Bible, which I, got, I had the honor of getting to keep. Um, I didn't realize I'd have this much trouble telling you this story, so I apologize. Uh, that Bible remains turned to the passage that I read to him as he died. And I mean literally as he died, the moment he was dying. I saved this verse to read to him. And as his dying breath, literally his last, his last breath washed over my face, I read Revelation 21.7 to him, which says this, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. can't tell you how deeply satisfying and what an honor it was to read those words to him. The last thing he heard before meeting the father was the affirmation of his sonship. Excuse me. Boy, between Aaron leaving and me preaching, I'm just an emotional mess these last few weeks. I apologize. <clears throat> what is Revelation 21.7 saying? Well, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, the one who continues to abide in God, the one in whom... God remains the one who stays faithful to the end. Not just faithful once at a place of prayer where the transaction happened. No, not just one-time faithfulness, but faithfulness in the good and in the bad and in the easy and in the hard from cradle, your spiritual cradle, cradle to grave. The one who perseveres to the end, they will enter into the fullness not of just justification, but the fullness of sonship forever. It's the promise of God 
to all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So in the next to last verse, in the chapter before where I read to you, John says, Dear children, sons and daughters of the Father, abide in Christ continually so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in in shame at his coming. You can approach the throne of grace boldly today and you can face the righteous judge with confidence when he returns. Because you're not just a justified sinner, you are children of the Father. And whether today represents painful memories for you of Father's or Father's Day in the past, or whether today means naps and ribeyes, I want you to hear the invitation to come and know and receive the Father through the work of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Justification, regeneration, sanctification, holiness, eternal life. With all of its blessings, all of its rights, and all of its responsibilities. To all who believe, John began his gospel. To all who believe and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. And they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. You're invited today to receive that. If you've never said yes to Christ before and you don't know what it means to be called a child of God, you're invited, as Pastor Jeff comes to lead us in our closing song, you're invited to come forward and say yes to him today. He's already said yes to you. He said yes to you on a cross. And you can say yes to him. And all it takes is a a little bit of courage to stand and walk in front of people perhaps you don't even know, or maybe it's even harder to do in front of people you do know. But there's no greater thing in life than to know what it means to be a child of God. So if you want to come and experience that today, today, the scriptures say, is the day of salvation. Come and be justified and made new, regenerated today by faith. Pastor Jeff? Actually, I want to pray. I almost, I'm just a scattered mess up here. Lord, thank you that even in the midst of my emotional bumbling, the truth of your word rings, I hope, Lord, I hope it rings clear. I hope the, the invitation that you extend to us all to become children of God by grace through the works of your Son and Spirit, I hope that that invitation is heard loud and clear, that every person in here hears and knows and receives the offer of salvation from you that can only be found in the name of Jesus. It can't be found anywhere else or in any other thing. It is only by the name of the Lord that a man may be saved. So Lord, draw people to yourself even now, whether they're here in this room or perhaps tuning in online. And may no one leave this space here today apart from the assurance of the salvation that you are providing. May we know, may your spirit witness to our spirit that we are children of God. May your spirit enable us to to cry out, Abba, Father, May we, we come and be cleansed and renewed, even if we've known you for many years and been saved for many years, but perhaps we've allowed certain junk to, to uh, collect in the corners of our hearts. Lord, would we come and find healing even for that and cleansing for that and fresh power for godliness today, and then we would see the fruit of your holy love evidenced in our lives, and by that know without a doubt that we belong to you. Lord, come and save and sanctify and heal and restore and redeem. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.